Well, thank you, brothers and sisters, for giving me this opportunity. That's going to be in my way, but I promise I will look at it. Um, I'll be watching it constantly. We actually have more than can reasonably be covered this morning, so I will just warn you in advance that we'll go very quickly through the opening slides because the most important stuff is coming at the end. And I do want to get there instead of dropping off at that. Let's bow our heads for a quick word of prayer. Father, I ask your blessing now. I pray that you would hold your hand over the unusual circumstance we have with the PA just now and everything else that will affect this presentation. We pray that you would give us the time to cover that which is most important as you gave Joshua the time to finish the battle. We ask your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. Talking about Dr. Kellogg versus the ministry. Why is this important? Uh, this would be better if I can see this so I know where I'm at. There we go. We'll just go like that and life will be good. Why is this important? I was a teacher in classrooms for 20 years and it was only after that that I ran into this statement. As religious teachers, we are under obligation to God to teach the students how to engage in medical missionary work. Now, cutting to the chase, an obligation is something that you must do or you get in trouble. Right? Okay. I never knew that. Language comes and goes. The word of the Lord lasts forever, but everything else is in transition. Uh, we're going to be talking about medical missionary work. This is not a term that Adventists always use. As a matter of fact, the first time that I have record of that showing up in the Review and Herald, from the pen of Ellen White at least, is not until 1893, and we don't find it in the testimonies until 1901. Before that, the word was binny. Anybody speak Spanish or any of the other Romance languages, okay, bueno, all those other variations thereof, okay. Uh, Benny, well or good, and we derive from that a few different forms of the word there. We'll be talking about the benevolent work, the last item on that list. Adventists, before they spoke of medical missionary work, they had what they called the benevolent work, okay? Uh, this was a term used by some of the Adventists from the late 1860s on to describe efforts to help people, especially the poor, disadvantaged, or sick, and to do that in practical, tangible ways. A synonym for this was known as the Christian help work. I like that. It's not flashy, but it gets the idea across. You're going to go out there and help somebody. Um, this was largely in reaction to the failure of the church to provide for Hannah Moore, and if I had time, I would tell you the story of Hannah Moore. I will not, however, um, because I don't have that time. Um, suffice it to say that she was our first foreign missionary, brought 20 years of experience to us when we had no foreign missions, missionaries whatsoever, and rather than receive her gratefully at Battle Creek, we refused to, or we failed to receive her. She went to northern Michigan and died in six months of tuberculosis. Um, now White speaks about that, and we will move on. By 1887, there were 37 Adventist city missions in operation, but in 1888, only 22 were reported. Okay, well, why is that? It doesn't mean that, what's the difference there, 15? It doesn't mean that 15 of them folded within, you know, 12 months' time. It means that they were very small, <laughs> you know, very small kind of, uh, yeah, one might argue, almost insignificant operations that was apparently insignificant enough that one year they'd report it and one year they wouldn't. Let's put it that way, okay? 
So this was the state of Adventist benevolent work. And then along came Dr. John Harvey Kellogg for both good and bad Seventh-day Adventist benevolent work and later medical missionary work would never be the same. Dr. Kellogg was, and I have a story to illustrate each of these points, all of which I will be skipping. Uh, Dr. Kellogg was the, uh, the most colorful individual in Adventist history, just as far as an individual goes. And these are great stories. I encourage you to find them sometime. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Kellogg was intelligent, okay? He was insecure. He was independent. He was proud. He was, uh, that's uh, Dr. Kellogg's wife. That's a part of the story. Never mind. Uh, now, I'll tell you this much. I'll tell you this much. It was pride that led Dr. Kellogg to that marriage. It was one of the worst things he ever did, not because this was not a fine young lady. She was a, 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 a gracious, intelligent, educated, uh, accomplished, Sabbath-keeping girl. She simply was never a Seventh-day Adventist. She was a Seventh-day Baptist. It was her former major professor at Alfred University, the Seventh-day Baptist University in upstate New York, who led Dr. Kellogg into pantheism. Not a good thing. Dr. Kellogg was decisive. Dr. Kellogg was controlling. And last, but certainly not least... Dr. Kellogg was converted. I know that on the basis of inspired counsel. After the meeting at Minneapolis, Dr. Kellogg was a converted man and we all knew it. We could see the converting power of God working in his heart and life. Well, the meeting at Minneapolis, of course, is a reference to the 1888 General Conference session, right? Jones, Wagner, Righteousness by Faith, you know, something about all that with any luck at all. Okay? This was the meeting at which Kellogg was converted. And afterward, it was evident. How? No, we could see it, she says. How could they see it? Well, righteousness by faith. You know, we've made it so intangible that sometimes we've argued the theory of it so much that sometimes we've forgotten the, forgotten the practicality of it. Let me give you some practical signs of righteousness by faith. While the believer is justified because of the merit of Christ, he is not free to work unrighteousness. We all know that. Faith works by love and purifies the soul. It's a familiar phrase, okay? Faith buds and blossoms and bears a harvest of precious fruit. Yeah, that's all good. What is the fruit? Here we go. Where faith is, good works appear. The sick are visited, the poor are cared for, the fatherless and the widows are not neglected, the naked are clothed, and the destitute are fed. That's what righteous persons do. Now just stop and reread that list. Actually, I'll do it for you. The sick are visited, the poor are cared for, the fatherless and the widows are not neglected, the naked are clothed, and the destitute are fed. That is what righteous people do. Amen. Just file that away. You'll need it for future reference. Okay? <laughs> Going on. In October of 1890, um, almost two years after Minneapolis, Dr. Kellogg sought Ellen White's reaction to the idea of starting an orphanage. And she wrote this. She said, Dear brethren, this is um, to the, you know, the general body of brethren in Battle Creek, right? While in Petoskey, Michigan, I had some conversation with your physician-in-chief in regard to establishing a home for orphaned children at Battle Creek. I said that this was just what was needed among us as a people, and that in enterprises of this kind, we were far behind other denominations. Enterprises of this kind, what kind? Benevolent. <laughs> Benevolent enterprises. We were far behind other denominations. Okay? So, 1890... He's asking questions, right? 
she said, go for it. So he did. The small beginning made at that time was not enough to meet the need. There were a lot more orphans in North America than there are now, and 100 some years ago. In 19, excuse me, 1892, Mrs. Carolyn Haskell came as a guest to the sanitarium, impressed by what she had seen. She asked Dr. Kellogg if there were any special needs toward which she might donate. Her interest eventually led to a $30,000 gift as a memorial to her late husband, Frederick Haskell. This is no relation to Stephen Haskell, just for whatever it's worth. Uh, the, these Haskells were never Adventists, okay? Mr. Haskell had already died. He'd been a Christian man. He'd left his wife, you know, a fair chunk of change. Uh, and she wanted to do something as a memorial to him, and she thought this was a great opportunity. So she gave $30,000 to uh, Dr. Not, I, this will be an issue later on. She gave $30,000 for the establishment of what came to be known as the Haskell Home for Orphan Children in Battle Creek. And just in case you have no concept of what inflation has done to our money value, try to build this for $30,000. <laughs> <laughs> that should get your attention. Nothing else does. Okay, um, <laughs> you couldn't do that for thirty grand. I'll, I'll just give you a hot tip there. Okay. <clears throat> okay. So that's that was the beginning of the orphanage aspect of, of benevolent work. Okay. Backing up a couple years, in 1889, Dr. Kellogg got a first-hand look at the work of city missions. He later commented, he said, I never had much faith in God until I went down to the Jerry McCauley mission in New York City and saw how the Lord could save drunkards. You know, there is nothing that establishes faith in God like watching him save someone. <laughs> Whether they're drunkard or not, I mean, you know, but whatever. Okay. So that got the idea of city missions into Kellogg's thinking. Okay. In the spring of 1893, the Chicago Branch Sanitarium and the Chicago Medical Mission were opened. In 1896, a large church was purchased and fitted up to become the working man's home. Dr. Kellogg and the Battle Creek Sanitarium financed this work down in Chicago, okay? The Chicago Branch Sanitarium and the Chicago Medical Mission. Uh, by 1896, it was expanding, and they purchased this church, and it became a working man's home. What in the world is a working man's home. Anyone know? Okay. <laughs> Come on, people. I've been a classroom teacher. You know, you're never going to get the teacher's attention with that. Um, okay. <laughs> a working man's home. Today, we would call it a homeless shelter. Adventists don't run homeless shelters. We did. We did. We don't. But we did. <laughs> okay. The services provided included basic medical care, English language classes, free baths, a self-service laundry, limited employment opportunities, penny dinners, and 10-cent lodging. There's some great lessons there. Um, total freebies are not nearly as productive as something that preserves the individual's some level of self-respect. Okay? Penny dinners and 10-cent lodging. For the 15 years of the mission's operation, Dr. Kellogg tried to spend every other Sunday in Chicago. Kellogg was, along with those other things I listed off a while ago, he was a generous guy. Actually, I think I had generous on the list. Um, he liked to help people. He put 50 kids through medical school. He and his wife raised 42 children. They adopted 17 of them. Okay. He was a generous guy. Every nurse that graduated from the American Medical Missionary College was given 
I forget what all, a whole bunch of books, a whole bunch of literature, a whole bunch, uh, several uniforms and something else and then shipped off to you know, some place to be a nurse, okay? <laughs> Kellogg liked being generous. He loved it. He was a nice guy. Okay, going on. We're going to track through a series of chronological statements now. It's important to try and keep these in mind. The decade of the 1890s is probably the lowest documented point of Seventh-day Adventist church history. It was during this time period that Ellen White made comments like, who can now say that the General Conference is the voice of God on earth? Okay, that's, that's indicative of a problem. Um, this was a tough, tough, tough decade, okay? She was in Australia. It took two months to get mail back and forth. There were issues, okay? There were lots of issues. Um, but we're going to track through this. 1895. She writes, I am in full sympathy with the work that is being done in Chicago. I believe in helping along every line which is possible to do following the steps of Christ. Those who take hold of this Christian help work, who will consecrate themselves to God, will find that he will be a present help to them in every hour of need. Okay? 1895. Full support of what's going on in Chicago. 1897, the very work Dr. Kellogg has been managing is the kind of work the whole of our churches are bound to do under covenant relation to God. They are to love God supremely and their neighbor as themselves. Do you notice the italicization right through there? I didn't add that. <laughs> I did not add that. What does bound mean? What does covenant relation mean? And what does it mean when you do not do that which you are bound to do under covenant relation? It's a breach of contract, breach of covenant. This is serious stuff. Okay, moving on. This work is the work the churches have left undone and they cannot prosper until they have taken hold of this work in the cities, the highways, and in hedges. Then angels of God will cooperate with human instrumentalities and a religious system will be inaugurated to relieve the necessities of suffering human beings who are in physical, mental, and moral need. Do you see the italicization right there? I didn't add that. Just wanted you to know. Do you see that word right there? Technically speaking, that word means can not. <laughs> okay? I know, sometimes you just got to make it plain, okay? <laughs> Sorry, I'm not trying to demean your intelligence. I want you to notice that. They cannot prosper if they're ignoring that work. Just roll that one around in your head for a while. My brethren in America, in the place of questioning Dr. Kellogg, excuse me, questioning and criticizing Dr. Kellogg because he is doing the class of work he is, stop right there, don't read further. <laughs> Why were the brethren in America questioning and criticizing Dr. Kellogg? The class of work he was doing. What was he doing? Benevolent work, <laughs> okay? They didn't like it. It's messy. Ever spend a night with somebody going through DTs? Somebody must have, some good resident. <laughs> okay, yeah. 
It's messy. I did it on my classroom floor one time. It's the only time I've done it. But I had the guy on my classroom floor all night. That was weird. I was not prepared for that. I didn't know what I was doing. But he lived. <laughs> okay, anyhow. My brother in America, instead of, in the place of questioning, criticizing Dr. Kelly, because he's doing the class of work he is, when you do your God-given service, you will be heart and soul engaged in doing the same kind of work, which will be of far more account in the sight of God than for so many to flock into Battle Creek where they become religious dwarfs because they do not do the work God has appointed them. There's a technical term for this kind of thing. It's called ouch. <laughs> that's, that's pointed. <laughs> Religious dwarfs. That is not to be insensitive to those statutorily challenged, or however it goes. <laughs> anyhow, anyhow, it's, it's, uh, whatever, not trying to be insensitive, okay? The problem that I face when I read these statements is that they apply to me just about as much as everybody else. <laughs> okay? I have no great room for uh, boasting on any of this. The best thing I can say now is I'm trying to reform. <laughs> That's all I can say. Okay? The work I'm in now gives me opportunity somewhat. That's the best I can say going on. Now this is 1897. Remember we've been tracking through the 1890s. We're up to 1897 now. And it starts to change in 1898. The question has been asked. Did you not give Dr. Kellogg encouragement after he had entered into this work? I answer, I did. For I had been instructed that a work of this character should be done by all our churches. That a deep interest should be taken in this very line of work, the benevolent work, that according to the light which the Lord had been pleased to give me, this line of work should have been taken hold of with resolution by our ministers, not to create a large center in one place, but to establish the work in many cities. This is the turning point, right here. This is what Kellogg was doing. Uh, you'll see some documentation for why I come to this, but I'm just going to destroy the, all the suspense and tell you. He was doing this now, at this point, because he was mad at the ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Okay? That's why this is entitled Kellogg versus the Ministry. The ministry, some members thereof, had been criticizing and fighting Dr. Kellogg. By 1897, 1898, he was sick of it. Dr. Kellogg was not used to coming in second to anyone. That was one of the stories I didn't get to tell you. And I'm putting words in his mouth, but essentially Dr. Kellogg by 1897, 1898 said, stupid ministers, I will out the world more than they possibly ever dreamed of doing. I will do it bigger. I will do it better. I will have more converts. And you know, this is not just idle boasting. Dr. Kellogg at that point controlled the, the employment of twice as many people as the entire workforce of the General Conference. Okay? So Dr. Kellogg expanded and expanded and expanded the Chicago City Mission. It ended up, it, was, it filled almost a whole block. He was using a lot of money to do that. Where did that money come from? Seventh-day Adventists. What was happening in Australia? Let me think. Anybody, you know, like, <laughs> do any, any, any history? You know, 1896, 1897, 18... What was happening in Australia? They were dying 
over there for money. <laughs> they were trying to get Avondale off the ground. And Ellen White kept writing, ah, oh, we need some money over here. Would you please send us some money? And nobody would send him any money. And Dr. Kellogg was using up a big chunk of it. This was imbalanced, was disproportionate. Okay? Why was it disproportionate? Because Dr. Kellogg was proud. And he was sick of the ministry. Okay? Let's go on. You'll see the documentation for all that. The work God pointed out for those in Battle Creek... <laughs> Uh, this is almost funny. The work God pointed out for those in Battle Creek was for them to leave Battle Creek and work in places where there was nothing to represent the truth. Thus, plants would have been made in many places. And Dr. Kellogg was working contrary to that. The saints congregated in Battle Creek were working contrary to that. Dr. Kellogg was working contrary to that by moving down to Chicago and setting up his own big operation. So now we had two big conglomerations of Adventists. We have Battle Creek, we have Chicago, and in between, you got nothing, <laughs> essentially. Okay? God has not forsaken his people. This is still 1898. But his people have forsaken him. Those in Battle Creek should have worked for the ones who needed their help. Dr. Kellogg took up the work they did not do. The spirit of criticism shown to his work from the first has been very unjust and has made his work hard. The lack of sympathy his brethren have shown him has prepared the way for the work he is doing in, has been doing in criticizing them. The Lord has no justification for any such work. The point is, both sides were wrong. Okay? Just, I, I'd love to explain all that, but don't have time. We'll have more time in the afternoon. We'll cover that more leisurely. But anyhow, had the church done in different localities the work given them by God, had they followed the example left them by Christ, there would now be centers all through America. Plants would be established in many places. There would be a great showing there would not be a great showing in Chicago alone. The work would be multiplied in many places with the full cooperation of the institutions established in Battle Creek. Okay? So we've got Battle Creek headed down a wrong path. We've got Chicago headed down a wrong path. We've got Ellen White essentially in exile <laughs> in Australia writing letters. <laughs> this has got to be frustrating. The past should be subject for keen regret. The Lord would now have the medical missionary work recognized as the helping hand of God. Oh, now there's a thought. Why don't we recognize the medical missionary work as the helping hand of God? Since we haven't done that in the past, <laughs> okay? She's saying, the Lord would have it now recognized. Nobody's done that. They're not enough, Neil. Okay? It needs to be recognized. But this work has been carried too heavily in one place when plants should have been made in many places. The Lord has given Dr. Kellogg his work. It is a fact that our ministers are very slow to become health reformers, notwithstanding all the light which the Lord has given upon this subject. This has caused Dr. Kellogg to lose confidence in them. There, the minister's tardy work in health reform has created in him a spirit of criticism, and he has borne down on them in an unsparing manner which the Lord does not sanction. He has belittled the gospel ministry. And in his regard and ideas has placed the medical missionary work above the ministry. I have seen in the, that in the censoring of ministers, remarks have been made which have not been to the honor and glory of God. So what we've got is the ministry and Kellogg taking pot shots at each other. Okay? Those who have refused the warnings of God, who did what? <laughs> Okay. Those who have refused the warnings of God have followed a course of action which brought its sure result. These influences have sometimes made the work of Dr. Kellogg doubly as hard as it should have been. They have led him to stand apart to some degree from the ministry. I desire to present matters as they are presented to me. Such a spirit of criticism and fault finding has done the work Satan designed should be done. Dr. Kellogg has been led to take the course he deemed it his duty to take. 
He has not connected with those who were not in sympathy with the work he knew to be of God. Rock, hard place. <laughs> okay. What did you want Dr. Kellogg to do? Well, what we wanted him to do was remain converted, and he did not. But would I? Would you? No. How easy is it to take when you start getting shot in the back by your own side? It's not much fun. Okay. Uh, let's see. Our people have not all appreciated as they should the man through whom God has worked and with whom he has cooperated upon the subject of health reform. They have not reasoned from cause to effect to understand how great was the blessing of the sanitarium at Battle Creek under the management of Dr. Kellogg and his faithful associates. Through this work, the truths of the third angel's message have entered where it would otherwise have been very difficult for them to find entrance, but the perceptions of our people have been blinded. That was 1898, 1900 here. This was written to Elder Irwin, General Conference President. She says, seek to save Dr. Kellogg from himself. He is not heeding the counsel. He should heed. He is not satisfied because the Lord has signified that the missionary work does not consist alone in the slum work in Chicago. That work, thought to be the great and important thing to be done, is a very defective and expensive work. She is not there ruling it out. She's not saying, never do work in slums. She's not saying that. She's saying, that's not the whole ball of wax. You can't spend all your money there. It's not going to work. You've got to be a good steward. And stewardship sometimes involves the diversification of your portfolio. <laughs> okay? You don't invest all your money into, say, British Petroleum stock. Okay? <laughs> Going on. God forbid that the purposes Dr. Kellogg has in mind should be carried out. Our work is not to be a divided work. Okay. Um, four years later, she made another comment that maybe helps us understand what she was referring to in this one. There's a four-year gap on these two statements, so I wanted to draw your attention to that. But this is what she wrote later. When the gospel ministers and the medical missionary workers are not united, there is placed on our churches the worst evil that can be placed there. Any grammarians in the crowd? What kind of word is that? Superlative. All right. The traditional 1% of the crowd understands grammar. Uh, <laughs> okay. It's a superlative. That's as far as it goes. You can't get worser than worst. Okay? <laughs> Except grammatically. <laughs> okay. Going on. The Lord has sent you warnings, but you have not heeded them. This was written to Dr. Kellogg now. Oh, uh, of the work you have taken up in Chicago, the Lord inquires, John, who hath inquired this, required this at your hand? You have established in America of your own ambitious creating as you belong to Seventh-day Adventist people. God has given you another work to do. You have not been called to do this work. The deceptive power of the enemy has led you to leave God's banner trailing in the dust while Dr. Kellogg has committed himself as working undenominationally in a work which was taken money from a people who are decidedly a denominational people. Isaiah 58, the great medical missionary chapter of the Bible. Isaiah 58 does not sustain you in the kind of work you are doing and in expending God's revenue on, the class, on that class of people found in the slums. There we obtain the least 
results for labor expended. The work has been hindered. The cause of God should have had a different showing, far different. I'm skipping on down here, and we're going to move on. Uh, God does not endorse. This is 1903. 1903. This is a year and a month after Kellogg wrote The Living Temple. Okay? The guy's already a published pantheist. Listen to what she says. God does not endorse the efforts put forth by different ones to make the work of Dr. Kellogg as hard as possible in order to build themselves up. Now, don't get me wrong. She's not endorsing his pantheism. Okay? God gave the light on health reform, and those who rejected it rejected God. Oh, one and another who knew better said that it all came from Dr. Kellogg, and they made war upon him. This had a bad influence on the doctor. He put on the coat of irritation and retaliation. God did not want him to stand in a position of warfare, and he does not want you to stand there. Going on. Well, the Haskell home burned down the early morning of February 9, 1909. Three children died. Unfortunately, that sad event did nothing to heal anything. It led to a round of recriminations. Dr. Kellogg said this, the Haskell home never was owned or controlled by the Seventh-day Adventists or any other church organization. The money with which the home was built was given to me personally by Mrs. Carolyn Haskell. The leaders of the Seventh-day Adventist denomination were never much in sympathy with the Haskell home enterprise, nor, for that matter, with any other line of philanthropic work. The top portion of that quotation is a lie. Dr. Kellogg lied. We have it documented. The top part is a lie. I wish I were anywhere near as confident in saying that the bottom part was also a lie. Well, we took the occasion, General Conference President took the occasion to prove that Dr. Kellogg was lying. We're going to skip over that. The fallout. In the early 1900s, there were more than 50, quotes, benevolent institutions operated by Seventh-day Adventists in the United States. Following Dr. Kellogg's loss of church membership over pantheism and other issues in 1907 and the Haskell Home Fire in 1909, this number declined rapidly. To a large degree, the de degree, the denomination had washed its hands of benevolent work. This is not hard to understand. The current administration, Elder A.G. Daniels, I.H. Uh, Evans, W.W. Prescott, these guys were really, really, really tired of Kellogg. <laughs> he had been a total pain in the neck. I suspect, though I don't particularly fault these gentlemen, but I suspect that they returned the favor on occasion. I don't think that they were the primary ones who were making war upon him, but I do think that they sometimes made errors in that way that earned his disdain. So there was this, this huge rift between the General Conference ministerial leadership and the medical missionary work. Okay? Um, as a result, after Kellogg was gone, we just kind of washed our hands of the benevolent work. It's a kind of a classic case of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Okay? Kellogg did more damage to the church by what he took with him than anything he ever left behind. <laughs> okay? Some miscellaneous comments on the topic, and we're going to buzz through these very rapidly. You may say you have been taken in and have, been, have bestowed your means upon those unworthy of your charity. And therefore, you become discouraged in trying to help the needy. I present Jesus before you. He came to save fallen man, to bring salvation to his own nation, but they would not accept him. Though your efforts for good have been unsuccessful 99 times, and you have received only insult, reproach, and hate, yet if the 100th time proves a success and one soul is saved, oh, what a victory is achieved. 
What I'd like to suggest out of that is that I, and maybe some others, in our efforts to be good stewards of God's funds, have had vastly inflated concepts of what the return on investment can reasonably be expected to be. Does that make sense? You know, I want, I want 80 some percent of the people to respond favorably when I do something decent. I get really discouraged in along about 83 percent. That's starting to get bad. Ellen White's suggesting 1 percent return might be something to be proud of. That tells me that people, by and large, are rats. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I could have told you that before. It just never occurred to me in that context, you know. People are ungrateful wretches. 1% of them might respond favorably and be saved. Oh, what a victory is gained. <laughs> I think I've had my expectations too high. There is enough wealth in your conference, this is written to a conference president, there is enough wealth in your conference to carry forward the work successfully, and shall the prince of darkness be left in undisputed possession of our great cities because it costs something to sustain missions? Let those who would follow Christ fully come up to the work, even if it be over the heads of ministers and president. Those who in such a work as this will say, I pray thee, have me excused, should beware, lest they receive their discharge for time and eternity. Only twice do I know of Ellen White suggesting a circumvention of the structure of the General Conference. Once was immediately following 1888. If the ministers will not receive this, I will go out there with Jones and Wagner and I'll take the light to them. Perhaps the people will receive it, she said. Okay? This is the second one. I would like to suggest it's because they're exactly the same thing. Righteousness by faith is so integrally... There's our word, right? Inte integrity, talked about it today. It's so integrally united with righteousness. Excuse me, what did I start off with? Righteousness by faith is so integrally united with the benevolent work that they are the same thing and they elicited the same response from Ellen White. In the 58th chapter of Isaiah, the work that the people of God are to do in Christ's lines is clearly set forth. They are to break every yoke, they are to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, bring the poor that are cast out into their homes, to draw out their souls to the hungry, and to satisfy the afflicted soul. If they carry out the principles of the law of God in acts of mercy and love, they will represent the character of God to the world and receive the richest blessings of heaven. And I would just simply ask them, what if they don't? <laughs> yeah. If they carry out, they will represent God. And exactly who would we represent if we don't? Going on. Again and again, the Lord has pointed out the work which the church in Battle Creek and those all through America are to do. They are to reach a much higher standard in spiritual advancement than they have yet reached. They are to wake out of sleep and go out without the camp, working for souls that are ready to perish. The medical missionary workers are doing the long-neglected work which God gave to the church in Battle Creek. This is 1898. Notice the date. They are giving the last call to the supper which he has prepared. Uh, in order to be carried... I'm going to skip over that. I'm going to skip over that... I'm watching the clock. Um, notice this. What page am I on? 52. I'll get caught up here. Okay. The Lord signified his displeasure by permitting the principal buildings of these institutions to be destroyed by fire. There we go. Notwithstanding the plain evidence of the Lord's providence in these destructive fires, some among us have not hesitated to make light of the same and these buildings were burned because men had been swaying things in the directions which the Lord could not approve. These are the two buildings in question, the sanitarium on the top, the Review and Herald on the bottom. They both burned down in the year 1902. You ask most people, say, why, did they, why were the fires you know, in Battle Creek? And they'll come up with the idea it was pantheism. Possibly the review burned because of pantheism, but the book hadn't even been written when the, when the sanitarium burned down. I like Ellen White's answer. She said, men, this is continuing on the same quote, quote we've just been reading, 
Men have been departing from right principles for the promulgation of which these institutions were established. They have failed of doing the very work that God ordained should be done to prepare a people to build the old waste places, recognize that quote, and to stand in the breach as represented in the 58th chapter of Isaiah. In this scripture, the work we are to do is clearly defined as being medical missionary work. This work is to be done in all places. And she just got done saying that's why the fires came to Battle Creek, because we'd failed to carry out the work of Isaiah 58. I have been instructed to refer our people to the 58th chapter of Isaiah. Skip to the very bottom for the sake of time. The Master's holy work was a benevolent work. Let our people everywhere be encouraged to have a part in it. And then a last three little quick statements here. These are ones that just kind of pulled me up very short. Well, maybe two. <laughs> the sufferings of every man are the sufferings of God's child, and those who reach out no helping hand to their perishing fellow beings provoke his righteous anger. This is the wrath of the Lamb. I am not interested in being a recipient of the wrath of the Lamb. That statement caught my attention. And this one. I'm going to drop down to here. If we neglect the cases of the needy and the unfortunate that are brought under our notice, no matter who they may be, we have no assurance of eternal life, for we do not answer the claims that God has upon us. I'm going to stop there and leave you on a down note. I never said this was going to be an encouraging meeting. Come back at 4 o'clock and you'll get another dose of discouragement. Come back at 5 o'clock and we'll end on a positive note, okay? <laughs> Please do. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you for the Sabbath day. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you for your instruction. And most of all, Lord, we thank you for your integrity. That even where we err, when we wander from the path, you point it out to us. We pray that you would guide and direct and bless in all that is said and done now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.